is Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Bob Heft who designed the 50-star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. After learning about Betsy Ross, you probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent U.S. flags were designed. It might seem like a no-brainer flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So, he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make or do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heft's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic, Heft told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? So I got up and I approached the desk, and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now, that, a B-minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, a friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa, and my mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later. I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well, 
Mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call, and it said, now, the President of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president, and he comes on the phone, and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to you. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly address it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to Buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank. My teacher, and he said, I guess if it's good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me. I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after, Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor, and a seven-term mayor of Napoleon, Ohio. He spoke extensively, as many as 200 engagements a year, and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heff died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68, but his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heff's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
we continue here on Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything in life. And we read a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal by Abigail Schreier entitled, Masculine Dads Raise Confident Daughters. To talk about that and more, she joins us now. Abigail, tell us a little bit about your family, how you grew up, and how that began to shape your life. Sure. I was born in Maryland. I have a younger brother, and we grew up in the house of lawyers. So my father was for most of our lives a lawyer, and then he ended up as a judge on the intermediate appellate court. He was the chief judge. And he was, you know, has always been sort of unapologetically masculine, and by which I, of course, do not mean brutish, but I just mean that there was a certain unapologetic masculinity to him. He, of course, held doors for women. He held doors for me. There was never a sense that there was anything wrong with that. In fact, the opposite. There was a sense that there was something wrong with not doing those sorts of things for women. Indeed. Let's talk about, as you were growing up with this, talk a little bit more about your dad, uh, his masculinity, but also his methodologies for raising you and the things he cared about, the things he expected from you. Because here's this traditional masculine father, but obviously he wants to raise a really strong daughter. Right. So my father considered himself a feminist in his own way, by which he meant that he never allowed me to make excuses for failures in conduct or morality. The fact that my feelings were hurt by something was not an important thing. It was one factor possibly to consider, but more importantly, the question was, was I right that my feelings were hurt? Was I right to be upset? And sort of unbridled emotion was never accepted for me in place of reason. And my father thought that My father's always admired women tremendously, and he made that very clear to me. He admired our mother, and he admired very much his mother and and his mother-in-law, and he really thought that strong women were a wonderful and enchanting thing. Part of that was that he he always had high expectations for me, so I was never supposed to be silly, and I was never supposed to get away with you know, bad behavior by crying or anything like that. My father found that all undignified and really unwomanly. He found it childish. And and he made that clear. I mean, if, if I wanted to prevail in an argument or I wanted to get sympathy, I had to do it by calming down and being reasonable. And so that's what I've, I had always learned was what it meant to be a woman. Certainly, that you know, that, that was the example my mother sent. But in some sense, more importantly, I got that message from my father. And the reason for that is when a young girl's growing up and when I was growing up, you worry about being able to attract men. And you worry that you might have to grovel or cry to get attention from men. You see that a lot. And my father, having a masculine example, made it clear that because he considered me an amazing young woman and he made that clear that I never needed to grovel for the attention of men and I never needed to reduce my standards either for my own conduct or for what I expected from other men. I'm going to read a line from this Wall Street Journal piece. He admired smarts less than grit and found surface beauty less enchanting than charm, the woman he admired most was our mother, not for her intelligence or accomplishments, though she had plenty of both, but because of a strength that took his breath away, and on which he often relied. Talk about that. My dad always made it clear that he found women to be remarkable. I think that in many ways, the people he admired most in his life, you know, and it certainly enjoyed most in his life were the various women he had known from women he had been friends with, you know, over the years until the day when he met my mother and then her. And what he admired was a sort of feminine strength and grace and smarts. 
he always found women more interesting in a certain sense than men. And he made that clear to me that he expected me to be one of them. And it was not because they were sort of picture perfect gorgeous, but more that they brought a certain grace and intelligence and emotional depth to ideas and an elegance to behavior. That didn't mean, you know, parading around in a sort of hypersexualized way or anything like that, but just carrying oneself with grace and dignity was something that he really admired and found very attractive. You write also, my father's own unapologetic masculinity made us feel secure. Talk about that. Absolutely. My father, you know, he was probably not physically stronger than the average man. He had asthma and and whatnot, but he made it clear that he would do anything to protect us physically if necessary and in any other way. One time years ago, I was being sort of picked on by someone who was sort of a family friend and he was a man at that point and I was still a girl and he pushed me and he said, you know, my father may case, if he ever does that again, that will be the last time. And I said, but he's, he's stronger than you, dad. And he said, that doesn't matter because I'm willing to do anything to protect my family. And I knew he was right and I knew he would prevail for that reason. That was absolutely an essential part of him was the obligation to protect us. That's so well said. And let's talk about one other thing you wrote. If you want to protect girls, find them good parents or become them. And so much is written about fathers and sons and the lack of fathers causing such problems with men forming gangs and all the things that can happen with boys when they don't have a dad. I don't think nearly enough is written about what happens to girls. That's exactly right, because dads have a uniquely potent message for their daughters in terms of what their conduct should be and what they should expect from the men in their lives. The love of a father for a girl, for his daughter, is going to set expectations of a young woman for what is charming, what is lovable, and for what she deserves. One of the things I mentioned in the article was that, you know, I sort of had a Me Too movement moment, as it were, which was that, um, you know, I was propositioned by a professor who's, who's a support I really thought I needed at that time in my career. And the reason ultimately, you know, I, I turned him down was because I was worried that if I lowered my standards, I would disappoint my father. It was not because of my mother's advice, although she had given me plenty, but because he thought I was the most amazing young woman in the world. And I think that only a masculine dad is credible to a young woman when he tells her she'll be attractive to the right guy. She doesn't have to grovel in front of unworthy guys who will take her for granted just because she would procure some form of male attention. So that is so beautifully said, Abigail, and such an important point. Talk a bit more about how having a strong father for a role model can set up a young woman for lifelong success. And talk a little about the sad flip side of that. Absolutely, it can. It's very important for girls, I think, to see this from their fathers, to not be afraid of it. I mean, right now we're teaching, with all this talk of toxic masculinity, we're teaching girls to be terrified of masculinity, to be terrified, in other words, of half the population. That's not a good thing. You know, women, young women today are not in a psychologically healthy place. In fact, arguably, they've never been in worse shape. The rates of suicide are very high. The rates of, of cutting and depression are, are higher than they've ever been in young women. You know, it's not simply because we're terrifying them of masculinity, but that's certainly one part. It's the opposite of, <laughs> of helping them to feel safer. I mean, it's no surprise to girls that they're less physically strong than men. They know this. We all know this. 
if you tell them that men's strength is terrifying, that it is brutal, and that it will always be used against them, that's a really frightening world to live in. Really, we should be encouraging the proper harnessing of masculinity into something virtuous and good. It's a problem that women, you know, that, that people aren't getting married in the same numbers. We know it's a problem for our society. It's a problem for our birth rate. It's a problem for establishing communities in America. But one of the things is that women don't know, young women don't know today what's to be gained in a marriage. They don't know what's to be gained by being sort of the feminine counterpart to a husband. And that's something that really has to be taught in order to be understood and learned. And instead, women are going, I mean, young women today, I think the average age at which which um, kids now see pornography for the first time is 11. And it's terrifying. A huge number of young girls are seeing this. And it is really their first visualization of sex. And it is very violent. It is what looks like a man really violently abusing a woman. This is a message that a lot of young girls are getting. Everywhere they look from the women's marches, they are told that men's sort of primary role in their lives will be to abuse them. That's the opposite of encouraging marriage. And by the way, young boys are told that the sort of great thing that men are known for is abusing women. So both things are really discouraging of marriage, of union, and partially as a result, you're really not seeing as much marriage, you know, unsurprisingly. It's such an awful message for boys and for girls. Abigail, any last words to your father and all the other fathers listening? I would just say thank you to my dad. I mean, he knows, look, I'm in a wonderful marriage, and my father really, really loves my husband, and, and I know that wouldn't none of that would have been possible. I wouldn't have been the woman who my husband was attracted to. I wouldn't have been strong enough for him, and I wouldn't have waited to find him had it not been for the example of my father. I'm very grateful to my dad, and I just hope so many other dads out there expect a lot from their daughters and expect that they demand a lot for themselves in the way that they're treated. And we've been listening to Abigail Schreier, her terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal entitled Masculine Dads Raise Confident Daughters. And it's so true. I'm hoping I'm doing the same with my little girl, Reagan. This is Lee Habib, Abigail Schreier's story, her father's story, here on Our American Story. our American stories and as you know we tell stories about every possible walk of life and people from every walk of life and Sally Ride well she became the first American woman in space in 1983 let's listen now to her amazing story thanks as always to the Academy of Achievement for all the remarkable work they do in this space let's take a listen to Sally Ride well my childhood was uh probably the typical childhood for a kid growing up in Southern California in the 50s and early 60s. You know, I, I loved being outside. I loved um, being active. I you know, loved swimming. I loved playing tennis. I loved playing baseball in the street. Um, and uh, as it turns out, I also, also liked science and math. 
And I was probably fortunate in that, that both of my parents really valued education and they didn't have any sort of preconception on what, um, you know, what sort of field I should go into. So they made sure that I, that I spent plenty of time um, studying, but also trying to make it fun and trying to make it entertaining and trying to make me appreciate that it was a, a good way to get ahead in the world. There were a lot of preconceptions uh, back then. I think that uh, whether in sports or whether in, um, <clears throat> in career choice, you know, there were uh, definitely preconceptions that girls didn't participate in sports other than swimming and tennis and golf. Um, they probably didn't like them or they'd probably you know, get hurt playing them or something. And that women didn't, uh, didn't go on to become lawyers or doctors, uh, much less scientists or engineers. And my parents, I think, were, um, were unusual in that uh, uh, they didn't hold those preconceptions. I liked some classes. I didn't like others. Um, I looked forward to getting out of school every day and, you know, getting onto the playground or, you know, getting, uh, getting home to play with my friends. Uh, but I didn't really mind going to school as much as uh, some of my classmates did and as much as, uh, much as a, lot of kids, a lot of kids do. History and English were difficult for me. Science and math were easy. History and, and English were, were difficult for me. Um, I was a quiet kid when I was growing up, and so I didn't really like to didn't like to talk in class. I didn't like to be called on um, in class. So I think that my most stressful moments were probably uh, sitting in class, uh, huddled down, hoping that the teacher didn't notice me and call on me. Whether I knew the answer or not, that was irrelevant. Uh, you know, I have no idea whether it's just uh, part of my nature. I'm, I'm um, an introvert by, by nature. Um, or whether it was uh, something to do with the times growing up. Who knows? Uh, but uh, it was definitely true while I was in elementary school and middle school and even a little bit into high school. While I was growing up um, in the early days of the space program, and I can still remember teachers wheeling those big, big old black and white television sets into the classroom so that we could watch some of the early uh, space launches and, and the splashdowns. Um, and that made a real impact on me, as, a, as I think it did a lot, of, a lot of kids growing up at the time. You know, I, I uh, thought a lot about what it would be like to be on a rocket and what it would, like, uh, what it would be like to be, to be in space when I was, you know, 12 years old. I actually read a lot when I was, uh, when I was growing up. I read all the Nancy Drew mysteries when I, was, when I was young. I read, as I said, the Danny Dunn series of, uh, of science books. Um, I read comic books, I read Mad Magazine, and I also read Scientific American. I had, uh, my parents got me, you know, my parents were not scientists and probably had no idea how to encourage a kid who was interested in science. So they, they decided, well, Scientific American would be a good thing to have in the house. So they subscribed to that. And I remember reading that when I was, uh, you know, 13, 14, 15. And I think that, um, that uh, you know, those are probably my, my strongest, strongest memories. I was literally just a couple of months away from getting, a, getting my Ph.D. in physics when I saw, believe it or not, an ad in the Stanford student newspaper that had been put in the newspaper by NASA saying that they were accepting applications for astronaut. And the moment I saw that, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, not that I wanted to leave physics. I loved it. Um, but I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to apply to the astronaut corps and see whether see whether NASA would take me and see whether I could, could uh, have the opportunity to go on that adventure. They had never taken a woman. Um, one of the reasons that they were uh, putting ads in student newspapers was that um, 
first of all, they hadn't at that time taken any astronauts in about 10 years, so they needed to get the word out. But more importantly, it was the first time they were planning to bring women into the astronaut corps, and they knew that unless they put announcements in places that qualified women would see them, um, they would get just the usual suspects of uh, white male military test pilots applying to the program. So uh, this was the first time that they were that they were bringing in women. I had never flown anything, not a thing. <laughs> I had flown in very large airplanes, but I'd never flown anything. But NASA was looking for, you know, the astronaut corps at that time was uh, still primarily test pilots, but they had some scientists in the, the corps, and they had made it clear that with the space shuttle program, they actually needed an astronaut corps that was more than 50% scientists and engineers, less than 50% test pilots. So they, they made it very, very clear that they wanted uh, people with science and engineering backgrounds and that the, the test pilot or even a pilot background was not required. They'd teach us everything we needed to know about that. I was surprised to be chosen. Um, you know, I was fairly certain that I would make it a reasonably long way in the, the selection process. Uh, because I was pretty well qualified to apply. I was going to have a Ph.D. by the time the selection process was, uh, was over. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a good athletic background, which, which NASA, they don't necessarily look for an athletic background, but they look for a variety of different backgrounds that, that show that you've got uh, a variety of interests and, and particularly show that you can uh, collaborate well with people, work as part of a team, communicate with, with people. So I knew that I had a reasonable chance to go a reasonable distance in the selection process, but I didn't think for a minute that I was going to be selected. It was tougher for a woman, um, but uh, the reason was really the surrounding culture at the time, um, the culture at, at NASA, at the Johnson Space Center, and also the, the culture in the country. It, it uh, wasn't more difficult um, interestingly, within the astronaut office itself. Um, the women and men, first of all, the, uh, the group of 35 of us who were selected included six women, so not just one, but six, a little bit of security in numbers. And the 29 men who were selected as part of that group were actually um, accustomed to working with women. One had had a um, PhD thesis advisor who was a female uh, physics professor. So they were not unaccustomed to the, the concept. So we had a, a peer group that was very supportive and, and uh, didn't think that it was uh, that unusual. However, our whole group was set into this culture where it was very unusual. Out of uh, roughly uh, 4,000 technical employees at the Johnson Space Center, 4,000 or so scientists and engineers, I think there were only four women. Um, so that gives you a sense of how male the culture was. When, when we arrived, we, uh, you know, we uh, doubled, uh, more than doubled the number of uh, women with PhDs at, uh, at the center. Um, I had a lot of friends who also applied to the astronaut program, so they understood completely why, uh, you know, why I wanted to do it. Um, my parents were, um, at least the impression they gave me was that they were very, very supportive and very, very excited. And I, I'm positive my father was. Um, I'm, not, I'm less positive about my mother, <laughs> but I think my father, actually both of them were, were very excited and very supportive. You know, it's something that was just uh, deep inside me, and there's, there's really no other way to describe it because, 
It's something that the moment I saw the opportunity, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I can't explain why I wanted to do it. It's just, you know, it's just something that was part of me. It's something that was a part of me. You're listening to Sally Ride, and she's the first American woman in space. And that was in 1983. She's also the youngest American astronaut to have traveled to space, having done so at the age of 32. And my goodness, she's lucky she had parents who saw beyond, at the time, traditional preconceptions of women's roles in the country. As she had said back then, women, well, they just played tennis, they swam, or they played golf. When we come back, Sally Ride's story continues here on Our American Story. continue with the story of the first female American astronaut in space, Sally Ride. And when we left off, Sally had discovered that she wanted to be involved in the space program and was just about to begin the selection process by NASA. I think that, um, that I had um, uh, a lot of the qualities that they were looking for in any astronaut that they select. You know, an understanding of the importance of teamwork and ability to learn things, uh, an ability to um, recognize a, a role as a member of, of a team, um, uh, you know, sort of an ability to do things carefully, um, you know, go through a checklist, make sure that you've, you've done in science the experiment correctly, in space gone through the, uh, the experiment or the, uh, the checklist uh, correctly. Um, I have no idea why uh, they, they chose me among the six of us to be the first uh, American woman to get a chance to go into space. Um, that's one of the things that uh, NASA does very well is, is keep its secrets on how it selects crews. Uh, none of us know why we were selected for any, any given crew. So I know that uh, the commander of the flight, Bob Crippen, had some input into that decision, but um, he, was not, he, he didn't get to decide. Uh, and I have no idea uh, how that decision was made. I'd love to know. It was hard to become an astronaut. It was hard to make it through the selection process, and the training itself was, uh, was very difficult. Um, not anywhere near as much physical training as people uh, imagine, but a lot of mental training, a lot of learning. Uh, you have to learn everything there is to know about the space shuttle and everything you're going to be doing, and... Uh, everything you need to know if something goes wrong. And then once you've learned it all, you have to practice, 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 practice uh, until everything is, is uh, second nature. So it's, it's a very, very difficult training and, you know, it takes years. I didn't have any doubts that uh, that was what I wanted to be doing. And I didn't have any doubts that, uh, you know, that I would be able to do it. You know, I had I was, up until that point, up until I joined the astronaut corps, you could say I was a professional student. I mean, I'd made it through high school, undergraduate, graduate school, to a PhD, so I knew how to learn things. I knew how to study, I knew how to, uh, how to concentrate and to dedicate myself to learning one, you know, one particular area, and that's what I was doing again. So I was fairly confident, uh, confident and comfortable, actually, in the environment. 
we all knew that, that the, the six of us were the first six women to enter the astronaut corps. We were very well aware of that. We realized that this was a, a significant breakthrough um, and that to some extent we were pioneers and, and trailblazers. But I have to say that I don't think um, I appreciated how much of a trailblazer I was for women and how much women uh, would look up to me as a role model in the things that I had done until after my, my first flight, after I landed. Um, partly because while I was in training, I was pretty well insulated by NASA. Um, they wanted me in training. They wanted me to learn what I was supposed to learn. They didn't want me out talking to uh, reporters and, and the press and, and the public. Uh, so I was um, you know, not unaware. I mean, I, I read newspapers. I watched television. But I wasn't face-to-face with, um, with women um, until, I was, uh, until I came back from my flight. And then uh, it hit home pretty hard um, how, how important it was to an awful lot of women in the, in the country. The view of Earth is absolutely spectacular. You know, and the feeling of uh, looking back and seeing your planet as a planet um, is just an amazing feeling. It's a totally different perspective. And it makes you appreciate actually how, um, how fragile our existence is. You know, you can, you can look at Earth's horizon and see this really, really thin royal blue line uh, right along the horizon. And at first you don't really quite um, internalize what that is. And then you realize that it's Earth's atmosphere and that that's all there is of it. And it's about as thick as the fuzz on a tennis ball. And it's everything that separates us from the vacuum of space. Um, You know, if if we didn't have that atmosphere, we wouldn't be here. And if we do anything to destroy that atmosphere, we won't be here. Um, You know, so it it really puts the planet in perspective. One of the things uh, that I realized while I was was, uh, in the astronaut corps um, and after I'd been on my second, my second flight, was, was really how much I did love science and loved physics. And I had, uh, had known, even when I went into the astronaut corps, that I would leave someday. NASA's model is astronauts leave after about seven years and then go on with their lives. That's how they model their recruiting efforts. Um, I had planned to go back into physics and to become a physicist. And after um, five or six years in the astronaut corps, um, I realized that, that that was important to me. And I had actually planned to, to leave NASA after my third flight, uh, which I never had an opportunity to take because of the Challenger, the Challenger accident. But I had planned to go back into academia, into to physics, uh, physics research and, and physics, physics teaching. So uh, it was almost as if uh, uh, that phase of my life had... had uh, uh, had come to a conclusion, and I was really I was ready to uh, uh, to move on at that time. In the years since my since my flight, I had the opportunity to talk to lots and lots and lots of groups, um, including elementary school kids, high school kids, um, college students, women's women's groups, and um, you know what I what I realized in doing that was that there were a lot of young girls and young women who were very, very interested in science, just like I was when I was growing up, 
and that 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 number the number of those those girls was rather large in elementary school. In fact, it seemed to be that about the same number of girls as boys uh, showed an interest in the space program in science, um, but that by the time got to high school and college, uh, if I would go to talk to a physics class, I would see that the the number of women in the class was not that much more than when I was in college. A little bit better, but not that much more. So it was really clear that uh, the pipeline was leaking more girls than boys um, all the way from elementary elementary school through um, through college. And I came to uh, came to appreciate that the reasons are are primarily societal. Um, the girls in elementary school are as good at math and science as the boys. The test scores uh, show that. There have now been um, uh, surveys. There was one, you know, not recent, 1996 survey of fourth graders uh, that asked a bunch of que- questions, including, do you like science? And 60... Eight percent of fourth grade boys said they like science. Sixty-six percent of fourth grade girls say they like science. So in fourth grade, it's the same number of boys and girls. Then we start losing both boys and girls, but we lose girls disproportionately all the way through, and it starts right around fourth or fifth grade. So I, I decided that um, you know it was worth my time to to try to um, have some impact on that and try to. Uh, First, help change the culture and make the culture realize that the girls are out there. Um, that uh, uh, that if we want scientists and engineers in the future, we should be um, cultivating the girls as much as the boys, and that we needed to be be able to give uh, girls in middle school, high school, and college the same opportunities that we give to boys. So, um, you know, I've I've put in a lot of time creating programs for girls, particularly in in middle school, to just keep them engaged and uh, uh, introduce them to role models, show them that, that uh, whether they want to be a rocket scientist or a, a geochemist or a microbiologist, that there are women who are now actively involved in those careers and who love what they do. So um, I, I think it's uh, slowly but surely um, having an impact. I've been um, a bit of a risk taker all my life, um, not always in the traditional way of defining risks, but you know, it was probably when I was growing up. It was probably risky for a young girl to decide to be a scientist. Um, you know, it was probably even when I was in college risky for a, a female college graduate to go on to graduate school in in physics, and certainly uh, going on to be an astronaut uh, was uh, was taking a risk. But I think that um, uh, that it is important to be willing to you know to take that step. Um, to kind of make that leap to do what you want to do. And that is, um, you know, my definition of being a risk taker. I'd like to be remembered as, uh, as someone who was not afraid to do what, uh, what she wanted to do and as someone who, who took risks along the way in order to, uh, to achieve her goals. And you've been listening to Sally Ride, who became the first American woman in space in 1983. Also, she was the youngest astronaut to have traveled to space having done so at the age of 32, and in 2007 was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio. And by the way, thanks again to the Academy of Achievement. Go to achievement.org. There are so many great biographies there. Achievement.org. Sally Ride's story here on Our American Story.
To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends. And follow us on Facebook at ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show, and it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus Takes the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Give Me Shelter, on and on. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip because when we're telling the story of the song, we like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it. I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those, uh, all those things, but that will be the one song, hands down, that, that will that will identify me, and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it would yeah. just be the sweetest thing yeah. in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did, it, it had no intention of being any of that. Yeah. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and, and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And and, and then they told me they were going to put it out as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> and I couldn't have been more wrong. But um, I, I, I really could not be prouder that that I was lucky enough to, to, to strike a chord with people that, that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was 
an amazing uh, healing process for her when she lost her brother. Sure. I feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to have gotten to write that one. And we're all blessed and lucky he did. And, you know, it was interesting as we were listening to that clip, Greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to this song. In fact, he listens to it every week, he told us. And then in the end, it inspires him as it relates to how to live. There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do with the story of the song. And it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain. Son, when your work on earth is done, go to heaven a-shoutin'. Love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song. I know your life on earth was troubled. Only you could know. And you're listening, by the way, to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gil's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill CMA Song of the Year Award in 1996 and two Grammys. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song.
we continue with our American stories. Kevin Briggs is a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped to prevent some 200 suicides. During his career, he was called to the Golden Gate Bridge about twice a month to respond to someone poised to jump from that bridge. Here's Kevin recalling one such encounter. We received a call of an individual over the rail and standing on it's called the cord, C-H-O-R-D. And I was the sergeant on duty. We worked 12-hour shifts. It was starting to, to get dark out. I had a new commander for our area office. He's the guy in charge. And I told him, hey, I'm going down there. It's almost 6, but I want to make sure everything goes smooth and see if I can do anything to help. So he goes, okay. He goes, but I want to go with you. He was new. He wanted to see this. We get down there. One of my officers is engaging this individual over the rail. He is standing on that cord, hanging on to the cables and looking down. So I just wanted the officer to know that I was there. So I touched his shoulder. He looked back and saw me. But the gentleman he was speaking to looked back and looked right at me also. And he said, you're the negotiator, aren't you? No, sir. I'm just here to help whatever we can do to get you back over and get you some assistance. He continues to look right at me. He goes, you have three master's degrees, don't you? I bit right into this one. Yes, sir, because that's a hook. That's what we can use to extend the time with these folks. So the officer, being the very smart and intelligent man he did, sees the guy engaging me, so he does this. He steps to the side. I would have done the same thing. Now it's on me because he's engaging me. He's under the influence of alcohol, very emotional as most people are up there. He's going with his mood up and down and up and down. And I'm going with him, and it doesn't, it's not going very well. I'm not able to connect with him that well. He's not giving me much information. And he keeps looking down. And I tell my commander, you know what, this isn't going very well. This, this may go bad. You might want to step back in case he goes. He goes, no, nope, I'm going to stay right here. Okay. So I keep going, and we found out what we call hooks, things that I can connect with him, whether that's family, whether that's something sports that we can connect with. We found out about his family, and I continue with that. How would your family feel, do you think, with you gone? And we expanded on that. It was going well. And then all of a sudden, he just turns around, holding on that cable, looks at the water, and starts doing this heavy breathing. And to me... That's a big indication that he's going to go. So I had heard of a technique, and the only time you could really try this is during this type of situation. So I did this. Hey! It's to snap him out of that sequence of what he's doing, whether they're counting, heavy breathing, and it worked. And it worked well. And he turned around, and he was angry at me for doing that. But we reconnected, and I said, hey, brother, I'm here for you. I don't want to see you do anything. So we talked about this for a while and kept going about the family. I kept focusing on that. He decided, okay, all right, you listened. I'm going to come back over. So he did on his own. Fantastic. Fantastic. We got him some help. We take him to a hospital. And that's not a movie that he's involved in. That's real life. And he's got to figure out how to make a connection. And if you noticed, he used the word listen. And he did, because you can't connect to somebody if you don't listen to them. 
And you can't go into these things with a plan because everybody's different. And how calm he is and what he's like, it's just, he's just already, you know, he's got that, just the perfect demeanor to figure out how to do that. And my goodness, he's not in a rush. Here's Kevin telling the story of another encounter with a would-be jumper. Coincidentally, this man was named Kevin, too. There again on the Golden Gate Bridge. I received a call of a man over the rail. I responded with my motorcycle on the sidewalk. Down there, I saw him on the sidewalk. When he saw me, right over the rail, I thought he was gone. Around the two towers of the bridge, it's just this small pipe. Kevin stood on that small pipe for 90 minutes. During that 90 minutes, my knees were hurting like hell because I was kneeling down, talking to him so he could look down at me so I can empower him. That's what this is all about. For most of this, except for four or five minutes, I listened. Kevin spewed things out and was crying. His birth mother had abandoned him. His depression, all these things, school, being bullied, all these things had taken a toll on him and nobody had listened. I say it's very easy to listen, but actually it's really not. If you're giving them their full attention and you're hearing what's going on, instead of your own agenda and trying to think of, okay, how can I top that story? What can I do? What's my response going to be? If we can just take this in and listen, it's very difficult to do. We're not taught to listen. We're taught to read, write, do math, all these things. We are not taught to listen. How we do things when we're up on that bridge, we use active listening skills. Open-ended questions, paraphrasing, summarization, I messages to connect with these folks. High emotions equals low rational thought. So we try to stretch that time out as long as we can. If I would just walk up and say, go back over here, what are you doing? For one, the uniform scares people. It does. I know that. We walk up slow. We approach slow. I ask their permission to come up and speak with them. I'm going to empower them as much as I can. Whatever hooks that I can get, family, friends, sports, whatever it is, we're going to go with that, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to expand on that. We expand that time, allow the rational thought to come back up, and this is basically how it works. This is what we do. Some of the damaging phrases that we do not use, calm down, really gets people angry when you say that. More, you should. You should. They don't like that either. Nobody likes hearing that. You should do this. You should do that. Doesn't work. Have you tried this? Works much better. Have you tried this? Why? Places blame. Makes them very angry. Makes us angry. Why did you do that? Why are you here? You're not getting the understanding of what's going on. And I understand my favorite. Do we really? Do I understand when he's over that rail? No, I may have depression, but it doesn't go to that level. I don't understand. But, so if I understand you correctly or if I hear you correctly, and they'll tell you how they feel, and we can correct that. Very, very important. Kevin did come back over that rail that day after that 90 minutes. We were invited to New York City, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and he spoke there. And he actively speaks now. 
to people about what happened during his life. How did he get to that level? He didn't even know how to get to the bridge. He doesn't remember even driving to the bridge that day. But he got there, and he was over the rail. And it wasn't I saved him. I have saved nobody. Nobody, not one person. I may have been a conduit, but these people come back over the rail. It's them doing it. They're the ones that make that decision. It's easy to let go and fall. Very easy. It's much harder to come back over that rail. He's had those same problems when he came back over. They're there. They're not going away. But he faced those. Pulled up his bootstraps. Went head on with them. He still has issues. We all do. But he's here. And he's doing really well. And that's Kevin Briggs, a retired California Highway Patrol officer who's helped prevent over 200 suicides. And by the way, you can learn more about Kevin Briggs from his book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair, or go to his website, www.pivotal-points.com. And by the way, it's so true what he said about listening. It just doesn't get taught. And we're taught how to read and write and perform and debate, but not to listen. You know, in Proverbs... Well, it says no one is as deaf as the man who will not listen. And Stephen Covey had written so beautifully and brilliant about listening and said most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And that skill set that Briggs is talking about, we can all use a little bit of help on that listening skill. And boy, those bad words, calm down, you should do this or that, And so true about I understand. No one wants to hear that. My goodness, this guy should be teaching courses for all of us. Kevin Briggs' story, the California Highway Patrolman, retired here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And as you can imagine, with the extreme nature of the sport, snowboarding, when it started, caught on really fast. Its popularity skyrocketed when a young East Coast college grad made some innovative designs that have lasted to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler to tell us the story of the one, the only, Jake Burton and the sport that became a worldwide phenomenon. The score's in. It's the return of the king in the men's Snowboarding is now a well-established sport and has come in leaps and bounds. White is the new gold. With its own culture, superstars, and equipment, 
Competitions and events have become international staples. Snowboarding has evolved into different styles, including alpine racing, freestyle, free riding, backcountry, and more. But where did it all begin? Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. It began in 1965 with the Snurfer. The Snurfer was invented by a Muskegon, Michigan engineer named Sherman Poppin. This contraption was a monoski. Two skis strapped together and ridden with both feet facing forward in the direction in which you are traveling. Like a skateboard or a surfboard, it had no binding. And like a sled, it had a rope attached to the nose to help with the steering. Ironically, skateboarding was birthed in a similar spirit when in the 1950s, kids attached roller skate wheels to small boards that they steered by shifting their weight. Here's Sherman Poppin discussing the birth of his snurfer. I developed the snurfer on Christmas Day uh, 1965 as a toy for my kids. And the motivation was uh, I lived on the shore of Lake Michigan and always uh, wished I could surf, but we never really had good waves. Anyway, I had these old Kresge skis and I put them together and we started riding perpendicular to the direction of travel, which is part of the patent. It turned out that it was an absolute blast. And my wife watched us through the window and she said, you know, that is really a fun thing. And that night, uh, she dreamed up the name Snurfer, which is a contraction of the word snow and surf. It was my dad who was out playing with us in the dunes who put the tether on. He'd fall down and the board would go down the hill. And he says, this is stupid. And I said, I agree. So the tether got on. Two purposes. One, you could just hang on to it so you wouldn't lose the board when you fell off. The other thing was you could sort of pull on it and swing it and literally steer. The motion's exactly the same as riding a, uh, the board today. Poppin patented the Snurfer in 1966. And in February 1968, he began holding snow surfing competitions at a Michigan ski resort every winter that attracted enthusiasts from all over the country. A year after Poppin patented the Snurfer in Cedarhurst, New York, the life of 13-year-old Jake Burton Carpenter started to unravel. Jake's older brother George was killed in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. Jake even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. Here's Jake Burton. I mean, I was a wise when I was young, and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school, and I went up to see the headmaster, who was a headmaster when my father was there and when my brother was there. It was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five-minute conversation, and then a long drive home, and that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I did. In 1968, the 14-year-old Burton was one of the thousands of kids who purchased a snurfer for 10 bucks and was hooked. It became such an obsession that the 10 years and 100 prototypes later, Jake Burton Carpenter produced the Burton Backhill, one of the first snowboards he built with his saber saw out of his apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City. 
As for the name of his board, Jake figured Burton was a better brand name than Carpenter. Fresh out of college with a degree in economics from NYU, Jake traveled with his snowboard creation to Poppins National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon, Michigan in 1979. There were protests about Jake entering a non-snurfer board, so a modified open division was created and was won by Jake as the sole entrant. That race was considered the first competition for snowboards and is the start of what we now know as competitive snowboarding. Here's Poppin. When we had our contests, the college kids were, this was sort of like the hula hoop among college kids. They just took it over because it would run on one or two, three inches of snow. And there's a little ski area in Michigan, north of Grand Rapids called Pando. And Pando let, uh, let us have one offbeat chair for five hours when we run our contests and downhill and slalom. And, and uh, that's the way it was. And in 1979, 14 years later, uh, Jake showed up at one of our downhill slalom things. And he had snurfers, but he'd put a little piece of inner tube over to slip your sorrel under. That's how it all got started, is, is, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he and, on the East Coast and Tom Sims on the West Coast were developing them at the same time. In an interview with Snowboarder Magazine, Burton paid full respects to his West Coast competition, stating, without Tom Sims to compete with in every sense, and vice versa, snowboarding wouldn't be where it is today. Here's Jake Burton being interviewed in 1980. How'd you get into it? Well, uh, a company called uh, Brunswick Corporation used to make something called a snurfer a long time ago, and I rode those for about the last 10 years, and nobody really improved it. And living back east and just sort of getting flustered with that particular board, I just decided to start making something on my own. In 1977, when Burton began making his own boards, he thought he would get rich quickly. He opened Burton Boards in southern Vermont. He had a logo contest and his sister-in-law won five bucks for coming up with the mountain logo that Burton still uses to this very day. Here's what Burton told Inc. Magazine. I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. People were like, a skateboard for the snow? I was a punky kid and my dad, who was always in my corner, said that I never finished anything. That was it. I wanted to prove him wrong. But in the second year of Burton's snowboarding company, things went from bad to worse. Here's Burton. I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time. And I remember once going out with 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. Because one guy had given me two back. Burton decided to stop worrying about immediate profitability and focused instead on cultivating the sport of snowboarding itself. In 1991, he began sponsoring the world's best snowboarders. And like the Steinway Piano Company, who uses the feedback from sponsored pianists to improve their product, Burton demanded honest feedback from his sponsored athletes in order to better his design. Burton also began marketing his sport to the ski resorts, 
who are almost unanimous in blacklisting the snowboard from its slopes. And what an insight by Jake Burton. Create demand for your product by inventing an American sport, which he did. And when we come back, more of the story, this entrepreneurial story, this sports story, Jake Burton's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And it'll be really easy for you to get to the podcast and listen. Again, subscribe to our newsletter. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of Jake Burton's story. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jake Burton. We ended with Burton deciding to put his snowboard product on pause and instead focus on cultivating the sport itself. Here's Greg Hengler with more of the story. Here's Steve Hayes, Burton team rider from 1984 to 1995, and professional snowboarder Tina Basich. One of the key things I think... Um that um, besides Burton and going from resort to resort and, uh, and working with the marketing managers and general managers of the resorts was um, actually Eastern Edge was one of the, the magazines here that had a, a blacklist and they would put every resort that didn't allow snowboarding on the blacklist. But it was, it was different because uh, the group of riders back then were, you know, not necessarily outcasts, but, you know, everybody had, was, had their own you know, colorful personality. Whether it was long hair and listening to hardcore rock or whatever it was, it was it was definitely a, a different edge. And uh, you weren't doing it um, because you might get uh, a million dollar contract with Burton or one of these other sponsors that are out there. Um, there was no um, banner patrol and there wasn't a VIP lounge and a rider's lounge and a, you know, sponsor's area. It was all strictly in one room. And um, it was a, a group of you know, surfers, skateboarders, and snowboarders getting together and, uh, and having this contest. We didn't have edges. We had fins on our boards. Some people weren't riding with high backs. We were inventing our equipment as we went every year. Tricks were being invented. We were crossing stuff over from skateboarding. And it was just an exciting time, and it will never be like that again. Here's editor of Snowboarder Magazine, Pat Bridges. Skiing and snowboarding in the 80s, it was a scary place. Lawyers ruled the day. And introducing something new to that environment was not welcome. And he took it upon himself as a challenge, and he literally did the legwork, went door to door, and sold our sport. You know, granted, you could question the motivations, be like, yeah, well, he's motivated by money, he wants to grow a sport, this and the other thing. Well, regardless of his motivations, 20 years later, there's 10 million snowboarders in the United States who rip, reap the benefits of that. You know. The daunting task of selling the sport of snowboarding to the ski resort gatekeepers cannot be exaggerated. Here's a news report from 1985 exemplifying the Herculean task Burton was up against. Because they're missiles. They cause, they cause nothing but problems, those things do. This is what all the fuss is about. 
It's like snow surfing. It's been around for almost a decade in the United States, and now it's becoming the trendy thing to do on our local ski slopes. But the operators of the hills want them off. Uh, the skiers, we try and keep them separated, but the s snowboards come down the slopes, and they'll go right in between the skiers, and we'll kick them off, and they'll just lip us off. And they're dangerous, because if one of these uh, skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. And most of them have no brakes on them. So uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. But where there's a will, there's always a way. Ski hill operators refuse to let anyone with a snowboard onto the chairlift. So they have to hike to the top of the mountain and then find a secluded ski trail where they won't get caught. The ski patrol says it's got its hands full. Quite a, quite a lot of them are uncooperative, smart alecks. You know, you go up and approach them in a very calm, collect manner, and they, they tend to lip you off. You ask them very nicely to leave, that they're endangering the public and possibly themselves. And they, uh, they swear at you, they tell you to get lost, mind your own business. So it's quite a problem for us, really. Do you see any compromise in the future at all? No. No, skiing is becoming more and more popular, and uh, if these boards become more and more popular, it's going to be more hassles, um, more confrontation. So we just like to say that we don't want them at all. Contrary to what ski patrol officers said, the ski industry was declining. It would be Jake Burton who would open both the chairlifts to the snowboarding community while simultaneously rescuing a flailing ski industry that was dead set on destroying the sport he founded. One by one, the number of ski resorts blacklisting snowboarders got shorter. Here again is Steve Hayes and Jake Burton. Over time, marketing managers said, you know, I believe Killington was one of the last holdouts in Vermont to, to allow snowboarding. And Killington marketing manager saw the name on a blacklist and they're like, geez, we can't have that. And actually, as the sport started to grow, the bottom line was these general managers could not be turning away dollars. There was a little bit of a slump in the ski industry, and uh, this was one answer to fill in some of the voids that those guys were looking for extra revenue. So it was very, you know, it took a while before we got under resorts, and that was clearly a huge, you know, move in terms of growing the whole thing and sort of making it bigger. But it took a long time just to get there. As the sport grew, so did Burton's company. Burton has been one of the world's largest snowboard and snowboarding equipment manufacturers since the late 1980s. And Burton remains the pinnacle of sponsorship for snowboarders. Here's professional snowboarder Trevor Andrew. Oh, Jake is the man. Like, he's one of the realest people, you know. The riders to him, it seems like I've always... He's just considered them family, and he, he's just, since day one, you know, he's not the typical, like, owner of a huge company like that that you would expect, you know. He totally is, like, riding with you and just as stoked as everybody else about it. He's not, he's not all business. He's totally, like, loves snowboarding and loves the team, and that's just his thing. He's just, like, is so into it, and... I guess that's what's brought him so much success, you know, is just because he has genuine love for the, for the sport. He's one of the pioneers. Here's pro snowboarder Keir Dillon. And you hear it all the time. It's, you know, Burton's corporate, and it's crazy to think that 
that you're going to call the person that helped pioneer the sport, fought to get it in the mountains, made the R&D, invested so much money to bring it to where it is, you're going to call them corporate. It's like the best case scenario on the planet, you know, like the dude that it pretty much invented the sport, yeah, he's the corporate guy, it means he handled it and, and you have a dude that cares that much about snowboarding dictating where it goes. In 1998, less than a decade after Time Magazine called snowboarding the worst new sport, the International Olympic Committee sought it and the youthful audience it promised. Thanks to Burton, snowboarding is now one of the most watched events at the Winter Olympics. Here's professional snowboarder and Olympic gold and silver medalist, Hannah Teeter. He just wants the best product, and that's what we all want, you know, that's why it's Burton's like the rider-driven company, is because they're all about input from us, you know, they want it to look good, but they want it to function more so. At first I was like, wow, he's the boss, like, you know, but he's just like a friend, he's just chill and great, he's just a down-to-earth guy. It's nice to have a boss like that. Not many people get nice bosses, but we do. Here's three-time Olympic gold medalist, Sean White. This is, honestly, this is where I like to see Sean backed into a little bit of a corner. Oh my lord! How perfect can you possibly land? I don't know, I've never really felt like it. he was a boss, ever. I don't know. It's been one of those things where he's just like, especially, I don't, I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just like this really mellow, fun guy. He's like, you know, I think the first thing when we were hanging out, he made some joke about what some woman was wearing, you know what I mean? And I was so blown away by it that I, it caught me so off guard. I'm like, this guy rules. Like, he's all time. <laughs> Much has progressed since Burton initiated improvements to the snurfer, but the raw authenticity that formed the heart of the sport still remains. Here's Burton. Nobody's stopping snowboarders or, you know, from looking like NASCAR drivers, you know, and putting patches all over them and selling their, you know, themselves to everybody. I mean... That's not what people want to see. And that's kind of good. I mean, there is this sort of sense of couth that's associated with, I think, all board sports that we don't want to lose. And I think that um, that might keep things down a little bit, a little bit smaller. Hopefully it'll just sort of keep its scene. During his long tenure as one of snowboarding's true patriarchs, Jake's net worth is upwards of $100 million. Ten years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts even allowed snowboarding. But today, it's hard to find one that doesn't. Burton's Burlington, Vermont company, which he co-owns with his wife, Donna, remains the industry leader with five international offices and 845 employees. Not even Burton himself could have predicted this much success. I, I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw a sport, but I did not see Sean White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice or snowboarding being in the Olympics or um, the stuff that's happened. And it's been the athletes that have made it happen and we've facilitated it, but it's been uh, exceeded, um, I wouldn't even say dreams because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now. I'm Greg Hengler. And this is Our American Stories. And what a great story. We're smiling here in the studio. We're beaming 
because half the people who were quoted here sounded like they were stoners. But they started something new here in this country, a new sport, a new way of life, and they said no to the people in power. They challenged everybody from the owners of these resorts to Time Magazine itself, who said it was the worst new sport. Jake Burton's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, give us your email address, and we'll send you the five best segments a week. That's ouramericannetwork.org.